morning, the children will be going um, to their class. Uh, as Pastor Carmen prayed, and I, I can't remember if Pastor Patty said it in the announcements, and not everybody was in the room at the time of the announcements. We're really uh, happy with the word that we got from Pastor Hank early this morning, uh, that he and Ryan Glenn were boarding a plane and heading back from London, so they're flying today. Uh, please keep them in prayer as they come to mind. We're also um, really excited about the email that we sent out this week. Not everybody's on our email list, so just to share um, that we're delighted that Ryan Cagno uh, has accepted the invitation to serve as our pastor of discipleship. Uh, you'll get introduced to him another week. His wife, Ashley, is over here on the side. Ashley, you can wave. Um, uh, we're excited that he's joining us starting March 1st. Um, I was thinking this morning that wouldn't it be nice? Uh, so his um, email address, like the rest of ours, is going to be Pastor Ryan at HarrisburgBIC.org. Not hard to remember. I was thinking this morning how nice it would be if we, uh, don't tell him, Ashley, but if we flooded his inbox with some welcome emails from the church before he gets all the work kind of emails from the church. Well, I'll never forget uh, the first time that I felt really challenged by the notion of serving others. Uh, it was between my freshman and sophomore year of college, and you can see by my gray hair that that wasn't just a short time ago. Um, I was working for the summer at a Christian camp in Maine, and I got to tell you, that is like the most delightful summer job that a person could have, work at a camp three blocks or so from the ocean. Um, my job was as assistant cook. That particular summer, I worked there three years. That summer, I was the assistant cook. That meant that throughout the week, I helped the cook with lunch and dinner meals. And then I was fully in charge of the kitchen um, on Saturdays and Sundays, make those six meals for the weekend while the cook was off. There, those weekend days in particular were very long days. Um, and I looked forward with great anticipation to having Mondays off and I could walk a few blocks to the beach and uh, relax and take a nap and all those nice things. On one particular Sunday evening, my friends and I discovered that one of the other kitchen staff had forgotten to take her asthma medicine and she was having a life-threatening asthma attack. I had never known anyone with asthma and had never seen anybody clawing at their own neck and face trying to catch uh, every breath, struggling for every breath. And then to add insult to injury, when this girl realized that she had missed um, her medicine dosage, she took it, and then she also took the next one as well. And so in addition to struggling to breathe, she was also having hallucinations from taking too much medicine. Um, so it was a long night. I ran for help from the camp nurse several times throughout that long night praying as I went. Um, I had been hard at work since 5 a.m. on Sunday morning and by the time it was 1 a.m. and then 2 a.m. on Monday, I really was at the end of myself. And I was further undone by the realization that this girl's job was um, in the kitchen as a baker, which meant that she was supposed to be reporting to the kitchen at 5 a.m. on Monday to bake 
that day's bread for the campers. This camp baked homemade bread every day for its campers. It was a lovely, lovely place. Um, I knew there was no way that she was going to be able to do her job. And I also knew that I was the only one who knew how to do her job who wasn't already committed in some other way at the camp on Monday morning. And so I knew that I needed to go to work for her. As I ran across the ball fields um, to the nurse's station in the wee hours of the morning, I was complaining to God about this. And he stopped me dead in my tracks, literally, in the middle of the ball field. He, he and I had a little conversation. And he spoke to my heart and he said, did you really mean it when you sang, sister, pray that I may serve you? which had been a part of a song that we had sung just hours earlier in our weekly camp staff devotion time. I learned that night that serving others is um, inconvenient and costly. Keep those two words in your mind today. Serving others in need is inconvenient and costly. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity and talking about giving says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. Do you ever ask yourself, how much should I give? I'm afraid, he says, the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditures on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. And then he says this line, if our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. That line gets me straight in the heart. I'm not sure how it hits you. That same, he's talking about money, but that same principle can be about all of our giving any of our giving, not just our money, yes, our money, but not just that, also the sharing of our energies, of our time, of our talents, of any of our resources that might benefit another. Well, the next morning at camp, I rose at 5 a.m. after a long weekend filled with work and a very short night of sleep, I was definitely pinched and hampered. And I went to the camp kitchen to bake the bread that would be served throughout that day. My body was exhausted, but my spirit really was energized. Energized by the chance to truly be of service to another person, to help someone in need. That night made a real impression on me. That was more than 40 years ago. And it, it came flooding back to my mind last month. I get teary when I say this little part, but Craig and I took his dad to the hospital emergency room at 4 p.m. on a Friday afternoon. His dad, who we now know, has cancer in his brain and in his liver and in his lungs, was losing mobility and had weakness on one side of his body, along with some mental confusion. So despite the surge in COVID and a month ago, <laughs> It was high, and 
we didn't want to go to the emergency room. We didn't want to go anywhere near an emergency room. But we knew that he needed to have a medical evaluation, and so Craig and I took him. We knew he'd have potentially a long wait, but we really had no idea just what that meant until we experienced it. It was a full 12-hour wait in that sterile, cold, uncomfortable waiting room during the time of the night that our bodies and our minds are accustomed to sleeping with a man with mental confusion who told us every 10 to 15 minutes that he wanted to leave or that he was going to leave, and he would have left if he could have stood up on his own. They didn't take Craig's dad back to the ER room until 4 a.m. We didn't leave the hospital till after 5 a.m. and we crawled into bed at 5.30 a.m. for a couple hour nap before we had to be at an appointment at 9 a.m. on Saturday morning. Serving others is inconvenient and costly. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. What I learned in both of these experiences is that there's a deep joy. There's really a deep joy in serving others, even when it's difficult to do so. The scriptures say that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And I think that's especially true when we spend ourselves out and the Lord then fills us with his joy and it gives us strength to keep going. So we've been in this sermon series on Jesus' parables. And we'll be thinking together today about this call from God to serve the needs of others. One biblical scholar has said that Jesus' parables work like a mirror, reflecting back to me where I stand in the landscape of his kingdom, kind of like a divine mapping of my heart and soul with an arrow pointing, you are here. In the story world of Jesus' parables, The writer said, I'll see my own reflection in the faces of the characters that Jesus tells us about. So today we'll be looking at what is probably the most well-known of all the parables of Jesus, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37, the parable of the Samaritan who helped someone in need, familiarly known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, And I'd like to pray for us as we... Uh, get to his word. Lord, we thank you that we can um, be together today, that we can hear your word, that we can um, study your word, that we can obey your word. We pray that your spirit would um, indeed speak to us through it um, and help us, Lord, to open ourselves anew to anything that you want to say Um, to us, to encourage us, to challenge us, to spur us on. We thank you um, for the gift that you've given us in your word, um, and help us, Lord, to to handle it rightly today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we'll be reading Luke 10, 25 to 37. Uh, I'm reading today from the New Revised Standard Version. Um, Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. 
But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spent. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. At the end of Luke chapter 9, just the chapter before this, we're told that Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So we know that he and his disciples left the area on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee and are making their way to Jerusalem, moving from village to village. And at the beginning of chapter 10 of Luke's gospel, we find Jesus appointing 72, and some translations say 70, to go before him into the various towns and villages where he was about to go. He sent them in twos, telling them that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, and urging them to pray for harvest workers for the huge harvest. They were to heal the sick, and the message that they were to bring was that the kingdom of God is near. The 72 returned to Jesus triumphant, rejoicing that even the demons submitted to them in Jesus' name. Jesus then corrected their thinking, explaining that the great triumph isn't in their authority over evil, but in God's authority over and his presence with them. He essentially told them, the cause for rejoicing is not what you do for God, but what God does for you, writing your names in heaven, saving you, giving you eternal life. Jesus then thanked God for hiding these things from the know-it-alls and showing them to innocent newcomers. Then he privately turned to his disciples and told them that they were blessed for many prophets and kings wanted to see what they saw and to hear what they heard. At this point, Luke tells us that a lawyer stood up to test Jesus, one of these very know-it-alls that he just referred to in verse 21 the wise and intelligent and learned. So this man wasn't a lawyer in the sense that we think of a lawyer, not a Patrick Cicero or an Andy Saylor, or even my son Ryan, who's here today and who is now a lawyer. Um, he was, our, I should say our son, I didn't mean to, where's Craig? <laughs> I didn't mean to say my son, our son. He was called a lawyer because he was an expert or a scholar in Mosaic law. And he was just one of the many who, at this time, asked a question of Jesus, not because he was seeking for the truth or understanding, but because he was trying to trick Jesus, to trap him by his words. And once Jesus arrives all the way to Jerusalem, these kinds of questions become all the more frequent. 
His question to test Jesus was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Interestingly, think about this. Is there anything that we can do to inherit eternal life? His question was a, a flawed one. And in great teacher style, instead of just giving the scholar a straight answer, Jesus answered him with a question of his own. What is written in the law? What do you read there? The expert then answers with Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18, the same two commandments that Jesus himself cites as the greatest commandments when he's questioned by the Jewish authorities in Matthew 22 and in Mark 12. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. That word for strength, that Hebrew word, it's just a four-letter word, M-E apostrophe O-D, ma'ad. It doesn't mean strength as in power, which is how we usually think of strength, right? You have the strength to pick something up or to do something you know, that's heavy or whatever. It doesn't mean that kind of strength. The word means muchness. It's a word that sometimes is even translated as wealth. Um, there's a wonderful little four-minute video if you go to BibleProject.com. It's a great um, website, BibleProject.com, and look up either strength or ma'ad, and the little four-minute video that explains the word further. I didn't want to take the time today to show it, but it's, a, it's this, isn't that a great concept that we love the Lord our God with all our strength, with all our muchness? Think about that. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, Jesus compliments the scribe's answer and then he gives him a challenge. He says, do it. You know what you need to do, so do it. If you do this, you'll live. Simple, right? Yeah, no. Who of us can do this? As we sit here today, we may very well feel deeply in our hearts that this is what we want to do. This may even be what we strive to do every day. But who can keep God's commandments perfectly? None of us. Eternal life is not something we can earn by doing something. We can't do anything to earn it, praise God. No matter how good any of us is, we can't fulfill God's law. The scholar's first question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, is a question easily answered. You cannot. There's a great hymn by Augustus Top Lady that many of us are familiar with, Rock of Ages. It, it captures our true situation so well. I think many hymnals don't do justice to the text of, of many great hymns. They, they remove verses, they change words. Um, here's Top Lady's words to this hymn. Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. 
thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. While I draw this fleeting breath, when my eye strings break in death, when I soar to worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne, rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. You and I, the expert in the law, none of us will ever be able to do something that earns us eternal life. Jesus held up the mirror of the law for this one who knew the law perfectly. He knew the law perfectly, but as Jesus held up the mirror, he could see that he could not keep the law perfectly. The expert in the law continues his conversation with Jesus. We're told that he wants to justify himself. He wanted some sort of acknowledgement from Jesus that he's righteous and deserves eternal life. And so he asks Jesus yet another question. And who is my neighbor? And once again, Jesus doesn't just give him a straight answer. This time, he doesn't just turn the man's question into another question. This time, he tells him a story, a parable, which, by the way, I think actually answers a different question than what the man asks. The scribe asks a who question, who is my neighbor? Jesus, however, answers a how question, how can I be a loving neighbor? The story that Jesus tells is the story of a man who traveled from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's a commonly traveled road. The distance between the two cities is about 20 miles. Jerusalem sits 2,300 feet above sea level. And Jericho sits about 800 feet below sea level. So in less than 20 miles, a traveler would descend about 3,100 feet. I don't know if you know what 3,100 feet looks like. I don't when I think of the numbers. So compared to some of the elevations in our area here in central Pennsylvania, it would be about twice the distance of the descent from South Mountain. If you're a hiker and you've hiked up South Mountain, you'd have to go down twice to get the, the descent distance that it is from Jerusalem to Jericho. Or Blue Mountain, it would be two and a half times distance of that highest point to the lowest point. This was a dangerous road that wound around hills and descended steeply through the desert wilderness. In, in the fifth century, Jerome tells us that it was called the Red or Bloody Way. There were all kinds of places where thieves could hide and travel along this road because it was so dangerous was usually done in groups or in caravans for safety. So this story that Jesus tells has several characters. The first, of course, is a man who was traveling on the road that led from Jerusalem to Jericho. Those who heard the story would assume that that man was a Jew and that what happened to him would come as no surprise to them. As he traveled, he was accosted by robbers who stripped him, beat him, and left him half dead. The next character we meet is a Jewish priest who's by chance, by chance, traveling along the same way. Just a little aside, isn't it funny that the little phrase, by chance? How many times, by chance, does God have us somewhere? It's likely that he was on his way home after ministering in the temple. 
And when he saw the wounded man, we're told that he passed by on the other side. Perhaps he assumed that the wounded man was dead. And according to Jewish law in Numbers 19.11, whoever touches the dead body of anyone will be defiled, unclean for seven days. And for a temple priest, that really would have been very inconvenient. He wouldn't have been able to do his work in the temple for seven days. And so he could have lived, though, by the spirit of God's law, and he could have helped the man in need, but he selfishly went on his own way. Well, the next character who happens along the way is a Levite, an Israelite from the tribe of Levi. The Levites assisted the priests in the temple. So perhaps he too was worried about being defiled by touching a dead man. Or perhaps he suspected that the man was a decoy, someone who was posing there to be injured while a band of thieves waited nearby to ambush him when he stopped to offer aid to him. But he too went on his way without the slightest offer of assistance to the injured man. So within the Jewish social structure, if you picture for a minute concentric circles, the priests were at the center, the highest, most important, most respected, most significant. And then there were the Levites. And then the regular Jew would be on the third circle out. I don't know what to call them, the regular Jew. Um, this was so ingrained in the culture that even in the synagogue, the priest read first, and then the Levite read, and then the regular Jewish person would read. And so the hearers of Jesus' story were probably expecting that the next character in Jesus' story is going to be this Jewish layperson. But Jesus has a way in his parables of, of giving the unexpected next thing. And so he grabbed their attention by going further out in the circles. The next circle would have been the tax collectors and the outcasts and the sinners. And then the circle beyond them would have been the Samaritans. And then the circle on the very outside would have been all of the Gentiles. The Samaritans were despised by the Jewish people. They were offspring of the remnants of the Jews who intermarried with pagans after most of the Jews had been carried into captivity by the Assyrians centuries earlier. The Jews considered the Samaritans to be dirty dogs. So Jesus' listeners would have automatically thought that when he introduced the Samaritan into the story, that that would be who the villain was, not, certainly not, the rescuer. This Samaritan not constrained by social lines or by religious laws, the scripture said was immediately moved with pity, with compassion, as some translations say, despite the fact that he had every reason not to help this presumably Jewish victim. I, um, I like words and I like, like reading and understanding more about words. The Greek word that's translated as moved with pity or compassion is this impossibly long 16-letter word. I'm going to spell it for you before I try to say it. S-P-L-A-G-C-H-N-I-Z-E-S-T-H-A-I. Splanknizestai. It's very hard. I, I'm not, I can't do it. It's the verb that comes from the noun splankna that refers to the viscera. The viscera is the soft, 
internal organs of the body, the heart, the lungs, the liver, and the intestines. There's a lovely thought, the viscera. The Greeks held that these inner parts, and some translations call them the bowels, um, that these inner parts are the seat of the deepest emotions. So the word doesn't just describe ordinary pity or compassion, but it's an, an emotion that moves a man or a woman to the very depths of his or her being. It's the strongest word in Greek for the feeling of compassion. So with three exceptions in the parables, in the New Testament, this word is used exclusively of Jesus. The three uses in the parables are the master who had compassion on the servant who was unable to pay his debt, the compassion which made the father welcome home the prodigal son, and then of course in this story, the compassion which made the Samaritan go near and help the wounded traveler on the Jericho Road. But as I said, this word is used almost exclusively of Jesus. So the kind of compassion that the Samaritan traveler on the road displayed is the same kind of compassion that marked Jesus's life. The Samaritan moved with compassion, took care of the man's wounds, cleaning them with wine, which would have been uh, like an antiseptic, and with oil, which would have been a bomb, and he bandaged them. And then he put the man on his own animal, perhaps himself walking the rest of the journey. He brought him to an inn, <coughs> excuse me, where he continued to take care of the man until the next day. And his care, which was already amazingly generous, compared, especially compared to the priest and the Levite, God's servants, right? God's servants. His care doesn't stop there. He gives two denarii to the innkeeper, which is the equivalent of two days' wages for a laborer. It depends on the, the hourly rate that you're using, but in our culture it would be the equivalent of two or three hundred dollars. It's a lot of money for a stranger to pay for his ongoing care. And he makes a promise to pay whatever else it would cost even beyond that. All this for a total stranger who surely would not have done the same for him if their situations had been reversed and the Jew knew that the victim was a Samaritan. So to the questioning expert in the law, Jesus now poses his own question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Who acted as a neighbor to this man in need? Well, the expert likely couldn't even bear to mention the name Samaritan. And so at this point, he answered, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus then said to him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Are there four more penetrating words? Go and do likewise. These aren't empty words from a mere teacher, but these are words filled with meaning from the one who himself willingly laid down his life for us. Go and do likewise. Serve others in need. Inconvenience yourself on behalf of others. Stop thinking about yourself and help someone, even if it pinches and hampers you. Well, there are three philosophies of life at work here among the various characters in Jesus' story. 
The first characters are the robbers. We didn't even really talk about them, but they live by this philosophy, what's yours is ours and we'll take it. And then there's the priest and the Levite who live by the philosophy, what's ours is ours and we'll keep it. And then there's the Samaritan who lives by, what's mine is not mine and I'll share it. What's mine is not mine and I'll share it. Whether it's my time, my energy, my talents, my abilities, my knowledge, my expertise, my money, my belongings, my home, my car, whatever I have is not mine and I'll share it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, with all your muchness and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Show mercy to those in need just as your Father in heaven has shown mercy to you in your need through Christ. Well, from 2014 to 2016, Sierra Leone, which is one of the poorest countries in the world, dealt with an Ebola epidemic. One of the protocols that was put in place there was to quarantine whole households for three weeks if exposed. I think today because of the worldwide COVID pandemic, we have a greater sense of what that might mean to, to put pro protocols in place and, um, and try to protect other people. This, however, was much more severe for that region of the world. So uh, I mentioned that Pastor Hank, you know, we know he was stuck in London and, and he had to quarantine, but he quarantined in a hotel and got room service for his meals. Now, I'm not saying it was nice. He didn't, it wasn't nice for him not to come home, but not such a bad quarantine, right? Right. This three-week quarantine wasn't quite like that. In Sierra Leone, a rope was installed as a border around the quarantine area, and no one was allowed to leave the home for three weeks. No one was allowed to come in on the other side of that rope for three weeks. I saw a film recently that showed a house with the, the rope on, on sticks around it and guards with guns standing nearby. Um, they were serious. They needed to quarantine. Well, earlier in 2014, there was a man named John who worked for an organization, a ministry called EduNations. There, it's an organization that's dedicated to establishing schools in Sierra Leone. John had to be removed from his ministry position when serious charges of misappropriation of funds was found to be true. Samuel Sesse who is the leader of EduNations, had to enforce the decision and tell John that he could no longer work with the ministry. John's response was to hire a local witch doctor to pronounce a death curse on Samuel. So later, in the midst of the plague, there was a woman who lived in John's house who inadvertently played with a child whose mother had just died from Ebola. John's entire household of 23 people was immediately placed under a three-week forced quarantine. Now, to me, the thought of like being stuck at home for three weeks, that's kind of a lovely thought. 
Um, thank, thank you for the vacation. Um, this would have been difficult, if not impossible, to provide food for a three-week period without being able to leave home. So a family the size of John's household, 23 people, would absolutely not have been able to survive the quarantine period without outside help. And the government had no more help to give. They were all tapped out. And so there were stories of children dying, not from the disease, but because their parents couldn't provide food for such a long duration. So when he heard the news of John's fam family, Samuel Sesse made providing food for John's family a priority for his ministry. When John saw one of the workers delivering care packages, he was so overcome that he nearly broke through the rope that was demarcating his quarantined house. His family was sustained and no one else contracted Ebola. John wept publicly and asked the church to pray for him. Samuel's openness to care for the person who had desired or even ordered his death opened a door in John's heart and life that would otherwise have remained closed probably forever. God calls us to reach out to others in loving service, especially those in need even others with whom there's some kind of animosity, like the Jews and the Samaritans or like John's relationship with Samuel. Many people's lives are deeply, deeply, deeply touched through loving acts of service done on their behalf, eventually even leading them to faith at times. This conversation with the expert in the law and the story that was told by Jesus, they don't stand apart from the beginning of the chapter where the heart of Jesus is made clear. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. What kind of laborers is Jesus talking about? His heart is bent toward those who are part of the harvest yet to be reaped. He looks on them with compassion. And I imagine that the laborers include those who preach and teach and share his word, but also the laborers who serve. No, you can't earn eternal life with your service. There's nothing you can do to earn it. Eternal life is God's gift of grace through Christ Jesus. Praise God for that. But once you have that eternal life, once you have that life with Christ, a life of service will express your gratitude for, to God for all that he's done for you. Jesus' words to this law scholar are also his words for us today. Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. I invite the worship team to come. We're going to close this morning with a song. Let us be known by our love. And as we sing, um, at least a, a couple or a few of the pastors will be here at the front to pray with anybody who would like to have prayer this morning. Um, as we sing, I encourage you to do so prayerfully, to ask the Lord if there's some way or some person 
that he wants you to be serving, that you haven't yet considered or that you've previously closed the door on because it would have been inconvenient to you. Ask God to help you through the pinch that you may feel in your time, in your energies, in your resources. And ask him that he would fill up the coffers. So my friend To from Zimbabwe, anytime I give her something, she, when she thanks me, she always says, I pray that God would fill up your coffers, that you've given out something that he'd refill it. Let's ask God as we give out of ourselves that he would refill our energies, that he would give us joy and serving and that that joy would be our strength. Let's love God with our muchness as we sing.
had a conversation uh, with James and John when they requested that they get to be seated on his right and his left in glory. The conversation greatly irritated the rest of the disciples. So Jesus got them together to settle them down and said, whoever wants to be great must become a servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. That is what the Son of Man has done. He has come to serve, not to be served, and then to give away his life in exchange for many who are held hostage. If Jesus himself prioritized serving, taking the very nature of a servant, as Paul wrote to the Philippians, certainly his words at the end of this parable are all the more potent for us. Go and do likewise. Let's pray together. Lord, as we go uh, into this week, as we go to our homes, as we go to our neighborhoods, as we go to our schools and to our workplaces and to um, the people that we rub shoulders with this week, Lord, we pray that you would make us um, aware of the things that you're calling us to do in service to others. We pray, God, that we would um, be obedient to you in going and doing likewise and looking for how we can help to meet needs. And whatever person or way that you're calling us to serve, God, um, help our answer to be yes to you. Help our wills to be shaped by you. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would bless um, the things that we say and the things that we do, that they would be filled with your love, and that that would spill out and affect those that we're with. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with God's blessing, my friends.